Where do you think you're gonna put a tree that big? Bend over and I'll show you. Dad, didn't they invent Christmas tree lots so people wouldn't have to drive all the way out to nowhere and waste a whole Saturday? They invented them, Russ, because people forgot how to have a fun, old-fashioned family Christmas and are satisfied with scrawny, dead, overpriced trees that have no special meaning. Nobody's walking out on this fun, old-fashioned family Christmas. No, no, we're all in this together. This is a full-blown, four-alarm holiday emergency here. We're gonna press on, and we're gonna have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny fucking Kay. Clark, stop it! I don't want to spend the holidays dead. Honey, please, I'll do the driving, okay? I'm in complete control. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Uh, we are recording a show called Why Are Dads right now. We sure are. What is Why Are Dads about? Why Are Dads truly tries to answer the Google results that come up when you type in those words, which is, why are dads so mean? Why are dads so special? Why are dads allowed to be this way? <laughs> <laughs> why are dads quiet for 11 years? Yes. Why are dads downstairs? We watch movies and we use them as a tool for examining why our dads made us this way. <laughs> yes. And we like to blame dads for things, which I think is a nice counterbalance to blaming moms for everything. Yes. I think that the fact that your dad avoided you for your entire childhood does not, as he might believe, make him exempt from having made some mistakes that affected you in some way. It's a thought. Ideally, by talking about these things, you can figure out some ways that maybe you yourself should or should not be in the future. Yeah. We're not saying we know how to do this. We're just talking about Rick Moranis and what we like about him. We know that we have some dad listeners out there, which is really cool. And also a lot of non-dads. We have some dad listeners who are learning how to be dads early on in their kids' lives and are ideally learning what to do and what not to do, even though none of us know the right way. But we know some of the wrong ways. Right. We're doing Battleship. We're playing Daddleship. <laughs> There's a Danny Gonzalez video that I love about a product called the Daddle Saddle, which is exactly <laughs> what it sounds like. And so this is Daddleship, where we're identifying what bad daddery is. And by doing so, we, you know, process of elimination, find the good dads. Daddleship, this Christmas from Hasbro. <laughs> When you sink someone's battleship, it's, it tells a dad joke. You press a button and it goes, when is a door not closed? When it's ajar. Okay, uh, uh, so first we are going to eventually talk about Christmas Vacation with our guest Sovereign Sire. Yeah. And we had a fun conversation. We'll talk a bit more about that. But first, we need to do a couple of housekeeping things. One, if you want to support the show and are able to financially, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash wiredads. If you're not able to do that, that's totally fine. We just like having you listen to these things and then talk with us on the internet sometimes. We love it. Two, we have a t-shirt that we designed with Liz Klimo. And it's a beautiful tribute to young Frankenstein. It is a depiction of a dog version of Victor Frankenstein embracing a dog version of his monster and saying, you are good. And the dog looks a lot like Peter Boyle. He also looks like your dog, Wheezy. He has this beautiful stoic smile on his face as if he's finally at peace. And what really pulls it all together, in my opinion, is the motion lines around his little tail. His little tail is thumping. 
because, you know, I can just see that dog, you know? Oh, I love that dog. Okay, and then three, we have, I think this is the first time we've ever done this. We have a correction. Ooh. So our last episode, we talked about clear and present danger yeah. with Jamel Bowie. Uh-huh. And we had a great conversation. Jamel's a New York Times columnist. We talked about the most quintessential dad movie I think we've talked about so far. I'm pretty sure it's about a thing that I said. Mm-hmm. Because I said something along the lines of it's quaint to think about a reality in which a bureaucrat stands up to the president. And a couple of people anecdotally online have reminded us of Reality Winner mm. and of Colonel Alexander Vindman, a friend who actually like works in the federal government reached out uh-huh. <laughs> and said, loved the episode about clear and present danger. I was thinking about something someone said about how the idea that some bureaucrat would actually stand up to the president or to internal corruption in the executive branch now seems more or less naive. If you think about it, people actually have been doing this with Trump. Look at Alexander Vindman, for example. The big difference is that when the information was brought to light, it was assumed that the populace would actually care about it and that the ruling party's representatives would assume the populace would care about it and act accordingly, and they have not. We haven't lost our patriots, only our national soul and minds. Mm. For real, the big change is the collective insanity we now live in, where people no longer believe in the truth. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So the so that is much darker, actually, because the question is not where are the Jack Ryans, because there are Jack Ryans in there. It's just, you know, does the public do we have a citizenry that supports them? And the answer is no. Yeah. We have a lot of people who presented with the Jack Ryans say that guy is part of the deep state and he hates my best friend a fake billionaire reality television show host who happens to be the president. And the My Pillow guy, second best friend. And Ricky Schroeder. I feel like it's kind of nice then that after having talked about this too good for us dad along the lines of Kevin Costner in the war, we're now going to be talking about this dad with feet of clay, Clark Griswold. Clark Griswold. Ugh. He stresses me out. And just, I remember seeing a bit of like National Lampoon vacation on TV. And I was just like, why would I want to watch a bunch of people on a road trip, apparently to nowhere, who are having a bad time with each other? If I'm going to watch a John Hughes movie, it's going to be one of the ones where everyone lives in a beautiful Chicago suburb and has a, a series of picaresque and at times racist adventures throughout the night until the boy of their dreams is deposited in front of them. 16 Candles, by the way, that's that movie. <laughs> I watched the most John Hughes movies in one several week setting than I ever have in my life. I watched more than I have since I was in high school and I didn't see it coming. But yeah, the guy has Christmas on a lock. He has Christmas on a lock. He has vacations on a lock. He has holidays on a lock and he fucking hates people in his house. He hates it. He doesn't like his family in the house. He doesn't like invasion of his house. He loves self-sufficiency. He's very conservative, as I have found out through reading about him. Oh, yeah? It's not surprising that he doesn't like people coming into his house. And if people come into his house, he likes little kids to learn how to protect themselves with guns. I know. I was watching Home Alone, which we will be talking about in a future episode. And I had a moment of being like, Kevin has a gun? Like, it's an air rifle, but... It's just weird to see a child holding a gun of any kind in this day and age. It wasn't long ago that we stopped making guns that kids could have recreationally look exactly like guns. 
we were like, this isn't working out. Yeah, so we talked about Christmas Vacation with Sovereign Sire, who came and just helped us understand Clark Griswold. (laughs) And one of the themes in our Christmas movie coverage is nostalgia, because Christmas itself is made of nostalgia. Sarah Archer, my friend and beloved Philadelphian and author of Mid-Century Christmas, can tell you all about this in her writing. I've been really struck by how the movies that we are kicking off the season of with Christmas Vacation are about people, even children, trying to recapture a past of some kind. This movie came out Christmas 1989. You know, that's the end of the 80s. That's really the end of something. And we talked in this episode about how Clark Griswold is a dad of the 80s, but in the sense that, like, dadhood as we saw it represented culturally in the 80s, was itself already this anachronism and really was of the mid-century. Yeah, I think a lot of times that people feel robbed that their dad isn't dad-like, it's because they're imagining in one way or another this extraordinarily anachronistic vision of daddom. But Clark Griswold's tragedy, and really Chevy Chase's tragedy, if we're going to get a little meta about it, why not? It's Chevy Chase. He is such a convincing counterfeit of a man with substance. He just has such a, such a heroic face, you know, the, the chin on that man and the dent on the chin on that man, you know. And on that man there was a chin and on that chin there was a dent. And in that dent there was a soul. <laughs> <laughs> like there's something in American masculinity where we all have to admit that we're in love with an aesthetic and, you know, Reagan was a president who had a charisma that derived not from having very much of an understanding of what he was talking about, but from having been on the screen for decades and knowing how to relate to people that way and come across as a benign cowboy figure, you know? And I think Chevy Chase kind of, he's like a tall, handsome, strong-looking man who wears, like, Don Draper clothes and, like, he's doing all the stuff but he's just hopeless and he's making everyone miserable. And I feel like that movie gives us permission to recognize that like the beautiful dad is hollow. The aesthetic is maybe tricking us. Beautifully said. Before we start, I should tell you the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is of course a 1989 Christmas comedy that's part of the National Lampoon series of vacation movies. It is the third in the series. Simply put, it is about a family living in the Chicago suburbs headed by Clark, played by Chevy Chase, and the series of misadventures that take place as they prepare for the holiday. They are visited by relatives, some expected and some unexpected, and Clark barely manages the stress of the holiday and of the feelings. Oh, and a super fun fact, Mavis Staples sings the song that plays over the animated opening credits of the movie. It's a Mavis Staples song. I think that's that's really great. We don't talk about that enough. Let's just go straight for it. Let's get into Christmas Vacation. Let's grease up this sled and go down this hill as fast as we can into the dark heart of masculinity. It's that time, Christmas time is here Everybody knows there's no better time of year Hear that sleigh, 
Santa's on his way. Hip hip hooray, it's Christmas vacation. Got a ton of stuff to celebrate. Now it's getting closer, I can't wait. Gonna make this holiday as perfect as can be. Just wait and see this Christmas vacation. Just wait and see this Christmas vacation. Oh, just wait and see this Christmas vacation. We have a special guest today. A special guest. Reveal yourself, please. Hi, this is Sovereign Sire. I'm a, a comedian, a writer, and a podcaster, but I did spend 10 years in the adult industry. So if you look me up, don't do it at work. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if they're interested, they can follow me on Twitter at Sovereign Sire. I write a lot of pieces and I have a podcast called Ill Repute. It's about women throughout history that were unconventional or just defied the rules. But because of my history in the adult industry, a lot of the focus of my work tends to be about women's issues, sex work and stuff like that. And through that lens of historicity and class and cultural criticism. And you're wonderful to follow on Twitter. And I love to read your tweets. Fucking hilarious. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. We, I was just saying to Sarah that you had reached out and suggested we watch the movie Frailty, which I'm eager and excited to do. But we're entering the holiday time. And so we asked if you would uh, examine Christmas Vacation with us. And I was, I was happy to do so. Actually, I'm not, I don't watch a lot of Christmas movies, and I don't think I'd ever actually watched it before. It struck me I haven't seen this movie to the end, but I've seen this movie a hundred times. Huh. I feel like the National Lampoon uh, franchise in general, if you grew up in a time when they still had normal TV and there were syndicated or reruns or the Sunday matinee, National Lampoon's was sort of the movie version of Law and Order. It's like every hotel room or every TV you turned on. <laughs> there was always a National Lampoon movie at some point in progress. Yes. This is one of those things that like no one is going to grieve really, but the cable TV vocabulary of movies. And we just talked about this because we discussed Clear and Present Danger when we had Jamel Bowie on. And I was like, I've never watched this movie before, but I feel like I've seen it. Because this movie or this kind of movie, which is like a 90s action movie with Harrison Ford, was somewhere on cable at every minute of the day when I was growing up. Yeah, this stuff in Saved by the Bell on all the time. Sarah, what, what you sparked quite a conversation by explaining to Twitter that you were watching this movie. And I'm curious about your history with this movie and then if you could just kick us off with how you felt watching it this time yeah it was really quite a journey it was really cool because I had seen like a little bit of I think the original vacation movie on cable one time and I was like this is really uncomfortable I don't like this <laughs> because I grew up with parents who f flew off the handle specifically because of their own self-created anxieties about trying to do something that their children nor anyone else in the world never asked them to do. <laughs> and so I was like, I don't need to watch a movie about that. I could be watching Rugrats or Trauma Life in the ER, something much less upsetting. And so I just like never sought it out. And I knew that this was a movie that people grew up with. And so I watched it yesterday morning 
And I started off being like, oh, this man is making me so anxious. And then it progressed. And I was like, wait, this man is being psychologically destroyed by Christmas. This is like Saw 6 if it was about Christmas. This movie is amazing. <laughs> and you will notice that this film ends with Clark Griswold standing motionless outside in the <laughs> snow as if frozen and also, therefore, as if an homage of Jack Torrance, the other great patriarch of 80s winter family movies. <laughs> <laughs> I used the Jack Torrance gift today. We're in the season. Sovereign, what is your history with this movie and, and how has it evolved? You just said you haven't seen it. I hadn't seen this particular movie, but it's... It's part of that oeuvre of um, what struck me when I was watching it and uh, I was talking to my older brother as we were watching it together, that this movie also represented to me a disconnect between or like a nexus point of Gen X and millennials were the, sort of the first generation of latchkey children. And so being a child at the time watching this for a lot of kids would seem like unrecognizable the reality that was being painted like a two-parent home with a dad that works an office job and a mom that presumably we don't know what she does or if she works and this sort of fantasy of middle class almost like Rockwell picturesque big wide streets huge homes I mean that house is bigger than like the Chateau du Versailles you know <laughs> and compared to the home alone house it's a dump <laughs> Right. And how the yuppies are depicted almost as like these childless vampires. <laughs> so to me, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is like a nexus point. This is right on the, the shift of a paradigm as, as a culture where we ended up moving into just a completely different family landscape. Mm. So it almost seems like a weird kind of time capsule of this was the height of success, the pinnacle of all of that for the 80s and that sort of yuppie generation. What do they call it? The me generation? Or is that us? I don't know. I think that's I think that's the millennials, but also the yuppies. I think everyone gets called that when they're young and less broken by life than their parents, probably. Yeah, like um, conspicuous consumption and the whole idea of, of him wanting to create a perfect Christmas. To me, that seemed like as a mission so unrecognizable to reality. <laughs> Nothing about this was relatable to my family structure at all. I recognize it in my mom. This is absolutely her pattern. Every year, I feel like when I was growing up, she would go overboard on Christmas and hold herself to some insane standard, burn out and get depressed about it. And I would get yelled at. The irony of it, it's so obvious. And it's just like, do you fucking people realize that you have turned the birth of our, our lovely baby Jesus, who even if you don't believe he's magical, literally was like a wonderful socialist with great ideas, <laughs> who appears to have been sexy. We are turning that into a time to yell at your children because you invent a thing to fail at and then take it out on your kids. You invent a thing to fail at. Oh, that's my favorite. The, yeah, I, I was interested in people's positive experience with this movie because so this is a movie that I've known about for a super long time. I don't love it like when people love Christmas movies, but I love it because it reminds me that Christmas is happening and I have feelings like my family very much was on television and like anytime we entered television Christmas season I was like it's time to feel good right I wanted to hear from people who loved this movie and I heard from one person who was like I was from an abusive household so 
watching how much this man cares about Christmas, even if it's for the wrong reasons, is so alien and lovely that like, that's what I'm drawn to. Mm. And watching it this time, you know, Sarah, I think you've summarized it in so many great ways at the beginning of the episode about a person who sets a trap for themselves and then is kind of stuck in the trap. The beginning of this movie is amazing, by the way. Like, it is a dual homage, which I was not prepared for. (laughs) (laughs) I was shocked at how likable I found this totally unlikable man this time yeah because I do feel like he's trapped in a crazy way by his own expectations like even this idea that he wants a bonus to get his family a pool that no one asked for like he really wants to get stuff for the family that marked success when he was younger and I think that that's such an important and interesting framework because as you said Sovereign earlier it feels like from another time and not just from another time because it's from what the 80s was like and you could work this corporate job and be very comfortable and like your biggest complaint was you didn't get like a $10,000 bonus. The National Lampoon movies in the the whole property is about looking back at the parents from the 60s too. People in the 70s observing their parents. Yeah. And so in one way or another, like Clark is out of date because he's from the 80s, but also he's out of date because really there are people commenting on how their parents were in the 60s. Well, and do you know what John Hughes's dad's name was? No. Clark. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> well, it was based on a John Hughes story, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a story that he wrote for the National Lampoon called, I think, Christmas of 59. Yeah. It has such an interesting structure, too. And I, I'm not as familiar with the previous vacation movies or the one that came after. Like you both have said, like, this is just on TV all the time. And so I've seen pieces of this movie over time. But this is the first time I also noticed that it's structured like the magazine National Lampoon. Huh. For the first 45 minutes, it's a bunch of almost unrelated vignettes, almost like two pages at a time of a parody magazine. And then it gets into an actual story eventually. And I didn't realize, I thank you for bringing that up. I didn't realize that Hughes actually was involved in the Lampoon property. Like as a filmmaker, I did, but not as a storyteller. And I was thinking about this too, actually, because I was like, how old was John Hughes in the 80s? This movie came out at Christmas 1989, literally the last days of the 80s. The Batman year. Yeah, the Batman year. And like the yuppies in this movie and Patrick Bateman and an American Psycho are yuppies that we can observe on the eve of the end of the 80s, which is a very meaningful trend in media. But John Hughes was born in 1950 so he was in his 30s for this entire decade when he had this wild renaissance where he made according to imdb like seven billion movies (laughs) officially seriously and it's funny too because like i was in high school in 2002 to 2006 and i was very much raised by john hughes movies because they were on cable tv all the time and they were very lovingly made and it's just relatively rare for movies to be made for teenagers with any degree of love and care and like taking teenage emotions seriously. His movies have some weird stuff in them, but they always felt like they took teenagers seriously as human beings. And I think that I and a lot of other teenagers were drawn to that after the moment of those movies was over. If you think about the structure of a John Hughes movie, like Clark in this movie is Molly Ringwald in 16 Candles. Oh my God, (laughs) he is. Wow. Like this movie is also a movie about a put upon teenager who just happens to be 40 years old. Well, and the movies are always about the misfit of this family, right? Right. Okay, this is great. We have Molly Ringwald in 16 Candles. We have Uncle Buck. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) 
so Sovereign, you were saying earlier before we, we started recording that by watching this through the dad lens, as it were, that you noticed things that you didn't notice the, the first times that you had experiences with it. So tell me what you noticed about those relationships. I mean, there's the obvious stuff in the beginning, which is the first five minutes put out like a weird Final Destination fever dream with <laughs> the father's desperate need to like prove masculinity, but like almost killing his family in the process, trying to prove his competency on their way to get that tree. The first time <laughs> I really started to notice it was when he's trying to light the house up and the first time that he tries to plug in the lights and it doesn't work, how the two different dads react to him. Mm -hmm. Ellen's dad is really dismissive of him, and then his dad tries to comfort him. And so you get this sense of what these different dads are like with each other. And when the scene at the end when his dad is like, no, I'm not going to read the poem. You're the grown up now. He really is Molly Ringwald. And Molly Ringwald also has two sets of grandparents in the house. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what struck me about when the dad comes in one you see his dad tells him you're the man now you just fucked up things are hard but that's just the way it is and like hugs his son there's physical affection shown there mm. and then says you're the man now and i'm just like wait he's giving him the keys to the house at 40 yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's why Clark Griswold is really a millennial, too. <laughs> yeah. But there's also, like, certain tropes that I recognize. You know, you had Ellen's dad, the so the father-in-law is disapproving of him through the whole thing. And then his relationship with his own son. Clark is this, like, fumbling, incompetent, stupid dad, which was very much a trope through the 80s and the 90s. And I don't know if that was a result of the new wave of feminism coming in, where it's like you had to show the dad being sort of bumbling and ineffectual. But, like, his son, right, plays that role role that other trope of the kid that is more mature than the parent mm. is always there behind Clark suggesting he do something more rational like the the little son being more of the grown-up <laughs> so it's like that's one depiction of fatherhood and then Clark's own father is still more mature so it's weird that Clark is this immature child between his father-like son and his father-like father. -like father. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's that going on. And then also the way that Clark interacts, like his own daughter, who's you know a teenager that's gone through puberty, like he doesn't really have a relationship with her, but the, the little girl that hasn't gone through puberty yet, his niece, he's super fatherly with her, right. but not with his own daughter, which was something that really struck me, where I'm like, oh, so now that his daughter's gone through puberty, I guess like she's now with her mom. And the thing that her mom says to her is she talks about how she has to be sleeping with her brother like her brother has to sleep in her room and the mom responds well I have to sleep with your father <laughs> we have to just acknowledge in some way that Beverly D'Angelo is like just an incredibly beautiful like angel of a woman who just has this glowing presence how does she exist and how did people make a movie where she's just married to this fucking guy like you could have cast like Lorraine Bracco in this and people would be like well she's out of his league but she's not an angel who deserves to be sitting on top of a tree right now yeah when I was watching it my my brother he just like walked in and walked by he's like man Beverly D'Angelo is so effing hot every shot of this woman she looks flawless she's glowing it's wild it really was a love letter to her and at the end when everything goes wrong she's wearing this amazing blouse that like is cut out in the center. It's very like 80s Playboy pictorial where you're like, I'm in a library reading law books. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like kind of a frilly barrister blouse that's totally open in the middle. And I was like, Clark, 
Can you look at your wife? What could you possibly be this upset about? Reassess. The thing that you had said, Sovereign, about his acknowledgement of his daughter and then sort of like his connection with his, I mean, I don't mean this to sound creepy, but his, his connection with his prepubescent niece, he can actually relate because he wants to like deliver some semblance of Christmas that he had when he was a kid, as we saw, you know, he goes upstairs and he watches these old movies of his parents essentially creating a Christmas for him when he was that age. So he thinks that mm. she's justified in having that and he wants to deliver that. He knows she's not going to get that. He talks to her once, I think. The rest of the time, she's assuring him. Yeah. I don't think they ever have an actual engaged conversation. Yeah, they don't. Even just the thing with the the son is helping him with all this stuff, which was very different from like, so my, I have two dads, but my, my adopted dad that I spent most of my life with was from the Midwest and a super handyman and everything. And when I was a teenager, like I helped him do everything, rebuild the engine of cars, put everything together. It was funny for me to watch it as, because I, I don't relate to watching a man try to be handy and not be good at it. <laughs> totally, yeah. My experience of fatherhood was that your dad literally knows how to do everything and he does it well. There was nothing he didn't know how to do and that couldn't sit down and just show me how to do. So it was also kind of interesting to see that portrayal of a dad, like someone that just kind of couldn't get things together. I mean, I also wondered about the homeowner's insurance on a place where <laughs> he's worried about putting in the pool, but there's an extensive damage being done to the windows, the roof, the floor, and everything else. I was devastated by the amount of destruction wrought on this home <laughs> that, like, no one cared about. <laughs> Well, as a person who lives in a cold climate in Maine, when he's in the attic, which I'm in now, there's a window that he pushes open and the window is only lattice and he pushes it and it spins open. And I'm like, that's standing between you and the Chicago suburban cold. Like, <laughs> get your shit together. It's like a thousand dollars in heat just going out the window all the time. <laughs> your life is going down the toilet. <laughs> So, so your dad was very competent and, and Clark must seem like a fucking shit show to you. I was losing my mind just watching the lights go up and watching how everything was in the power box and everything was in all the outlet. Like I was just internally having, I was having kittens. I was like, oh my God, there's no reinforcement. <laughs> and this feels very familiar to me because like the experience of watching a man not know exactly what to do in a handy situation but living by a philosophy of like, you cannot ask for help, you cannot admit to confusion, you cannot read the manual, mm. and you cannot let your wife or your daughter be right because right. your ideas about gender mean that like girl child cannot be better at you than handy things or else your penis will, will drop off like a baby's umbilical cord. A lot of people I think hate this movie because they think, because of the way a lot of people watch this movie, that Clark is supposed to be a hero. Like Scarface. Or Breaking Bad. We learn through the scene that you talked about, Sovereign, earlier about with Clark and his dad, that his dad wasn't a hero. His dad didn't know how to do all this stuff. His dad was just fucking drunk all the time. And so he had some layer of chill that Clark thought came from like parental authority, but just came from the fact that he was half in the bag. Like his dad says like, I had a lot of help from Jack Daniels. Hilarious for people who didn't have abusive drunk dads. Clark has just in his head imagine that all the magic that came from Christmas and stuff came from like a flawlessness of his parents and that's not at all the case at some point like his dad has to be like 
Yeah, Clark, you kind of fucked up. Like, everyone's really uncomfortable. Like, why don't you actually try to be cool? And then the last 10 minutes of the movie happens, which, by the way, I don't think I've ever seen. He's cool for the last 10 minutes because he lightens up. The moral of the story is to fucking lighten up. (laughs) But people think that he's the hero. I think because a lot of people watch this movie with their dads and their dads love this movie and they don't necessarily know why. Also because Chevy Chase is a very handsome man and so people feel more comfortable identifying with the horrible handsome. Guys, is Chevy Chase handsome? I don't know. He has like a very even face that a sculptor would like. I think that's like (laughs) the technical definition of handsome. According to art, like an ugly person is Adam Driver, (laughs) who I would much rather have sex with Adam Driver than Chevy Chase, obviously. Um, And not just because Chevy Chase is a horrible person. Also on Twitter this morning, I kept getting a news thing that was like, it's Adam Driver's birthday. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, me too. Why does Adam Driver want us to know? Like, I think he's fine. Like, does, is he, are you worried that no one's going to come to his party? The thing that I notice a lot now as I've gotten older and rewatching stuff from different time periods is, is I'm always, and maybe because I'm, I spent 10 years in a very looks based industry. I very keenly aware of how, aesthetics of what is good looking and appropriate has shifted over time. Hmm. It was interesting because I I was like, this is a snapshot in time, right? Chevy Chase was what was considered a handsome leading movie star. Beverly D'Angelo, the kids, like looking at everyone's aesthetic, there are certain things I always notice, like in a modern movie, everyone's teeth are really white. And when I watch older movies, I'm like, oh, back when you were allowed to have wrinkles or yellow teeth or your skin didn't have to be perfect. This is a time when you could still look like a normal person and be a movie star? Well, Alex, you've talked about the success of ugly men in the 80s. Oh, God, it was a huge time. And in the 70s, I mean, my God, the 70s. Like, if you want to watch a 70s movie with some weirdly sexually charismatic who are sweaty and have uneven features, watch The Taking of Pelham 123. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Chevy Chase's fame was born of that time. He was like a hilarious cokehead in 1975. He was the original Seth Meyers. He was part of the structure that created this property and then so on and so forth. And everyone hates him so much because he seems to be very mean. I immediately went to his Wikipedia and I was thrilled that Cornelius Chase, the first lines of his bio are, comes from a very prominent family. And I was like, at least we're not denying who the gatekeepers were. Oh my God. I think a part of the reason so many people love this movie generationally is the oral history live from New York was not out yet. Live from New York as an oral history of Saturday Night Live must read. The thesis of it should just be that Chevy Chase is an unrelenting dickhead that no one likes. <laughs> Speaking of the, of the Cornelius thing, what's just mind blowing is the character he plays in Community is Chevy Chase. His background, his history, his relationship with his dad. Honestly, I didn't know any of this until recently and people started saying it on Twitter. The shitty character he plays in Community is exactly his biographical background. And it's tragic and sad. He seems absolutely crushed by his background. What is his character like in that show as someone who's never watched Community? He's like a rich, out-of-touch guy who comes from wealth and has been sort of like so out of touch for a long time, is like racist, is extremely sexist, has some heart for sure, but it takes a lot of unpacking, but it's very tied to a relationship with a, a wealthy 
seemingly out of touch, even worse version than Chevy Chase. <laughs> and it's sad. It's fucking sad. Because as a result of all of that, like Clark Griswold, all the heart he has, and I think that that's what stood out to me in this movie, is this man has a ton of heart. And he can't get the fuck out of his own way. As Quiz Kid Donnie Smith says in Magnolia, I do have a lot of love to give. I just don't know where to put it. Chevy puts it all over his family. Yes, he puts it in all the wrong places. He's like, what about light bulbs? And it's like, no. <laughs> Talk to your daughter. Like, don't have a massive meltdown. I get why in theory Beverly D'Angelo's character is like into Chevy Chase in this movie. Like he seems so well intended that in the honeymoon period of their dating, it must have been interesting. Oh, I'm sure he was great. (laughs) I watched everything with a lens towards class just because that's how I'm wired. And something that I was really noting, I was like, okay, so all the fucked up family members are on Ellen's side. Her sister that is married to Randy Quaid, right? Who's like the weird loose cannon with the metal plate in his head. And I'm not sure if that's supposed to be military related. Yeah, it is. Also that there's this weird depiction of how people were treating people that had PTSD from the war, right? Which is, it was just, they became the crazy Mm -hmm. uncle. Right. And that they've been living in their RV because they're broke. And then the other thing that's going on is the bonus has been lost because the bosses started to cut corn. Like these are all premonitions of what's to come in the 90s and the early 2000s, right? It's like that a whole structure and society is about to change. So to me, part of this movie was almost like this is like the last Christmas before everything goes to shit. Yeah. Yeah. Her dad is the one that's kind of a dick and doesn't approve of anything Clark does. But then the sister is married to the crazy uncle you also start to wonder like what was ellen's backstory like did she come from less money and less privilege or less love Mm. i'm like i want to know what ellen's story is like why are all her family members fucking weird i don't know how intentional that was or it was just the way it was written from someone's life experience like someone's mom maybe did come from a family that was dysfunctional but it just wasn't really analyzed or looked at yeah. I'm, I'm most certainly much more like Randy Quaid than I am Clark, at least in my background. And in your cheerful demeanor. Thank you so much. <laughs> I was immediately so sensitive to the interactions Clark was having with him because I have felt like Randy Quaid in those situations. Mm, yeah. But I also was watching this movie through the lens of it just being a massive assault and transgression of boundaries, right? And so by the time Randy Quaid shows up, Clark is already at wit's end. His brother-in-law shows up unannounced and he's, I would say he's rhetorically cruel to him. He starts being so shitty to, you know, the Randy Quaid character. Is this just him being shitty for no reason? Is this him being shitty because nobody has any fucking boundaries? At one point he's asked like, are you out here working in the Christmas lights or are you avoiding the family? And I have been in so many by proxy holiday times where I'm dating someone or I'm married to someone and I'm at the holiday thing and I'm out washing dishes trying to like help put up decorations or do whatever the fuck I can to not have these people on top of me and so I related to that but to watch this movie through God Sovereign so beautifully said the weird class shit that they're dealing with the end of this movie fully manifests itself in the new century the fact that we're watching 
really the tension in this movie being a man who did everything he thought that he had to do in order to get the money that he was supposed to get. And it turns out that the corporation cut all the corners possible and he doesn't get it. And that's what drives him nuts. Welcome to the 21st century. We've all gone crazy because the corporation decided to cut the bonus. No one gets anything. Just the whole idea that when they bring the boss in, that by looking at the family, he suddenly has this revelation like, oh, (laughs) people are getting her seriously and also he's like they're suffering in their tiny four bedroom suburban mansion they can't even afford a pool what have i done this is truly a fairy tale if only and also the idea that the ignorant working class guy is the one that's effectual enough to like just go solve the problem yeah because commit a crime clark like don't slowly simmer until you boil over in 10 years and kill everyone like i also watched the stepfather the other day oh the best speaking of people who boil over and kill everyone I'm amazed that that movie doesn't have more of a legacy. Like, part of that is because it is more truly and authentically creepy and true to life because it's based on the story of John List, among other kind of family annihilator killers, and it's about a character played by Terry O'Quinn who finds a single woman with a child or children, marries her, starts a family. Somehow they disappoint him. Somehow they are imperfect And so he murders them all and creates a new life in another Seattle suburb, which like, God, Terry, go to another state, but whatever. It's the same story, really. And this movie, I think The Stepfather came out in 86, 87. And they're both just stories about like 80s fatherhood and this idea of just like, that's how seriously we took the, the patriarch in the 80s and how seriously that patriarch took himself. Sarah, you mentioned the things that make you cringe about this movie are the fact that you have lived under this sort of regime. Can you talk about the things in this movie? And and I'm ready to humanize him all day. But at the same time, it's because I never had someone who cared that much about Christmas. And it's kind of like a fetish. So I'd, I'd love to know more about what it's like to be under Chevy's thumb. Oh, boy. Okay. I personally love Christmas. And I decided on November 1st, I was like, it is Christmas for me now. I'm ordering my tree. I'm watching Christmas movies. We're going to do as many Christmas movies as we can on this show. I love Christmas. It has so much different stuff involved that there's things that most people can find some way to enjoy. And it's just nice to have something to distract you when things are really cold and dark and miserable. And ideally, it it offers that in some way. And also, I feel like Christmas is potentially a vast excuse to hold your family hostage for, like, weeks on end, forcing them to, like, make memories that they don't want to have. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because you're trying to recreate a utopia of your youth or what you thought was a utopia. Or just the idea that, like, you have to do Christmas and you have to do it hard. I just think of that approach, I remember it as a time of, like, such almost unbearable stress. And as we've discussed on this show before, I was a child who attempted to manage the stress of the adults in my life because it was important to my safety and comfort that I do so because they were prone to boiling over. So I was, like, very invested in figuring out how to, like, get them to not boil over. I just associate... Thanksgiving through Christmas is a time of boiling over 
and I just have like very strong boundaries about Christmas. <laughs> People need to like not get too close to me at Christmas because why this is going to be the best Christmas of my life. And Clark needs that too. And fucking eight to 10 people are on top of him at all times. And as a result, he becomes even more of a, of a tyrant. And he's like, no, honey, Christmas is about misery. Sovereign, what was your experience with Christmas and this side of things? We just didn't celebrate Christmas. I think when I was super young, we did. I think by the time I was 13 or 14, it just had kind of disintegrated as a celebration. There would be some gift exchanging, but I came from a single parent household and no one, I guess, was really that actively interested in making it a thing. There were no rituals around any of these sort of family holidays. So I've always watched them and been like, oh, that's that's very interesting. I would watch other people go through this really stressful stuff and I'd be like, that's weird. I just like sit in my room and eat some food and maybe get some presents. There was no ritual around any of it. We never had any um, extended family at all. So it was always my immediate family unit. I mean, we celebrated them mainly because everyone had the day off. We would sit around and do stuff, but there was no structure to it. It sounds peaceful in a way. It was amazing. We've talked in this show a, a handful of times about sort of the codependent core family. So like in, in that family, right, it's like either there's one parent or two parents and then there's there's the child or children and there's a navigation of the baggage and it sort of like usually feeds itself or whatever. You kind of know the patterns enough to navigate it. And then the second the uncles and aunts come in or like the other set of parents come in, it just creates a new set of disorder that no one knows how to navigate. And that's kind of how I watch this movie, right? Is that it's like, it seems like everyone knows how to navigate Clark in a normal situation. But then his parents show up and there's that dance and then her parents show up and there's that dance. It's like the marriage of Figaro. A duet becomes a trio. A trio becomes a quartet. Exactly. And it's just chaotic and you can no longer predict what the situation requires. And as a result, you just have this unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. And then, and then also just thinking again as a person, the second there's company and the second there's more company, I get squirrely. And I think about that a lot in the context of, of, of Clark. And in this case is like, it doesn't excuse the way he is or sort of the verbal abuse that happens or the way he becomes terrifying when he doesn't get the bonus. None of that is excused. A lot of people criticize Clark in one way or another for the, the fantasies he has. You know, he's kind of hitting on the, he's not even hitting, he's very gross to the woman who works this counter and then has a fantasy about her or whatever. First of all, I think it's like a weird, we are shitty about that because like, I think it's totally okay for people in monogamous relationships to have fantasies about other people. That's entirely fine how it's illustrated here where he's thinking about that person who he had some experience with he can't even have a fantasy while he's looking at the window thinking about this person without some member of his family fucking interrupting it this person is at wit's end he can't even think about random sex without someone coming in and ruining it and as a result this man just fucking loses his mind at the end of it i can't relate to that but i can relate to that <laughs> worth bringing up that it's a wonderful life which is a movie that no one liked when it came out and which became a classic because it was cheap to play it on tv is about partly a man attempting suicide like that's why he gets visited by an angel <laughs> yeah just if we're gonna take that as the ultimate classic then it's like well then from the beginning this as an American holiday has been about driving men insane. That fantasy sequence to me was very much like the dream ballet of Christmas vacation. 
<laughs> that whole dream ballet sequence with the woman actually starts with him fantasizing about the family around the pool having a good time. Yes. This is the height of narcissistic or histrionic sort of fantasy, right? Which is fantasies of perfect love or where you're the hero or where you've secretly been toiling with an illness, but somehow mm. you've survived it. These are like tropes that mentally ill people with personality disorders have is they'll have these fantasies of greatness where it's either revealed that they overcame an adversity to be successful or they're just like beloved. His first fantasy before the sexual fantasy is this fantasy that he's got the pool in, everyone in the family's super happy, he's the hero, and then you see how it's tied into his masculinity because, and then the sex arrives. Oh, sure, sure. First you get the money, then you get the pool, then you get the woman. The idea of being the hero to the family is so innate and within his masculinity that it's tied to his sexuality his virility. This is like a weird psychological Rorschach test where you're just seeing it laid bare that being a good provider and making your family happy is like directly tied to your very virility as a man. Right. Well, and that's, and that's precisely why I'm glad that he didn't hear his wife say, well, I have to sleep with your father. I didn't connect any of that. And that's so wonderfully said, but I certainly connected the fact that this is a person who ties all of these things up in a very unhealthy place. If he can't pull Christmas off, he can't fuck that woman. And that ruins him. Yeah. yeah. That's why he kicks Santa out in the lawn. Like, he's impotent in every way. When she said that, I was like, well, yeah, like, if he can't figure out how to turn off a lamp, he certainly isn't finding the clit. <laughs> <laughs> also, this kind of slapstick humor, we don't see in comedies anymore. Yeah. Almost like an homage to Buster Keaton. Yeah. For sure. He cannot get anything right. How did he manage the feat of fatherhood? <laughs> like, I did appreciate the amount of slapstick humor and how, like, all the pratfalls and everything. Because I was like, we just really don't see that anymore. I think it got taken over by gross-out humor by the Farrelly brothers in the early 2000s, like something about Mary. And so I kept trying to think, if this movie was filmed today, like, how would it be different? I think it would be like Seth Rogen would be in it and it would be more about awkwardness. It would be 45 minutes longer for no reason. And he would have Sufjan Stevens at the end credits and he'd be like, I guess I feel something. <laughs> I like that as an addition. All the things we said about him aside, I love Chevy Chase a lot. The first things I watched on television were the first seasons of SNL. He was in the first season like that. I love him because he's always been around, even though I know these things about him. And I recently saw the interview between him and um, the greatest Weekend Update guy, Norm MacDonald. Oh, yeah. And he's still, God, he's still a dynamic physical comedian in his mid-70s. Hmm. You know, Benny and June came out five years after this movie. That as a genre had totally gone away by this point. I never thought about how out of place this is as a result of that. Chris Farley was still doing it in the 90s. Yeah, and then it maybe like literally died with Chris Farley as far as American comedy goes. My friend describes sort of white male comedy as, as dick comedy. <laughs> so if it was filmed today, it would be like Paul Rudd, Seth Rogen, Jason Segel. And their wives are like, Clark, get in the house. I hate you so much. Yes. Yes, and, and all the humor, like all the pratfalls would be psychological. They would be his wife being a 
bitch to him and he'd be like, wow, marriage is terrible. I too hate women. (laughs) All right. We're this far. I feel like it's time. We know in Christmas Vacation who the father, well, there's so many fathers, but we know that it's Clark Griswold. Who do we believe is the daddy? Well, I was thinking, when did Brian Doyle Murray start playing bosses? Because he's definitely got a perfect voice for being your withholding boss who will never love you. He's like a living Mr. Burns. He's the arcade owner in uh, in Wayne's World, right? Yeah. And he's also, he's one of the like top-hatted men who escorts Punxsutawney Phil in Groundhog Day. <laughs> of course, he's Bill Murray's brother. He's been at it longer than Bill. Really? So Bill Murray is Brian Doyle Murray's little brother, I guess. That's exactly right. He was in the National Lampoon crew before Bill really came into the scene. Wow. He was, he was, I think he was in that, like the notorious Godspell. There's a notorious Godspell? Yeah. So National Lampoon went from being a publication to like a pop culture phenomenon through a, a traveling performance of Godspell, which brought us Martin Short, Catherine O'Hara. Wow. Um, I think Brian Doyle Murray was in it. And beforehand, they were, they had a um, musical called The Lemmings, which was a take on um, Woodstock. Wow. It was like a joke about how shitty his were and Brian Doyle Murray is the reason I think we have Bill Murray. I love comedy history. Like people who are in comedy or who are like professional comedy fans, like are wonks about comedy to the extent that people are about like jazz. <laughs> and I think a lot of people don't know that, but it's true and it's great. And yeah, I'm gonna do my best Brian Doyle Murray impression and I encourage people to join me. I think it's gonna be pitiful. Okay. Well, Clark, I was wrong. No, that's terrible. That was terrifying. It is like a very gravelly and yet high voice. It is like disarming and somehow friendly. It's like if a Norwich Terrier could talk to you. (laughs) He's like the King of France at the end of Tartuffe. He just appears and he's just like, it's all fine now. Thank you for kidnapping me. I was wrong and doing the wrong thing. Corporations can be good. Right, he admits he was wrong. That's why he's the daddy. Oh my god. Sovereign, what's your take? The Randy Quaid character, because he's the only one that like gets things done. <laughs> his heart's bigger than his brain. <laughs> he's handy. He knows how to empty his own toilet. To me, that was like more a depiction of fatherhood when he's standing out there dumping the septic tank into the gutter. <laughs> To me, that's a dad. They just are doing their own thing. I guess the version of fatherhood that I'm familiar with, when they're needed, it's like they just fucking get shit done. He's kind of the daddy, and he's like, let's go get the boss then. Like, let's just go do it. Like, there's no hesitation. He doesn't tell anyone. He just does it. (laughs) Yeah, because that's dad shit. Oh, there's a problem? Let me solve it. To me, that seemed very much like a father, which is kind of oblivious to any of the chaos that's going on or that they're contributing to. But then when, like, the chips are down, someone makes a statement, I need this then dad goes and gets it and brings it back. Like, to me, that was very, like, the primeval, primitive dad. Yeah. Whereas if Clark Griswold had to kidnap someone, he would, like, accidentally duct tape his own hands together and then look woefully at the camera. (laughs) Yeah. And that's my dad. I mean, I feel like you described my dad. It's like, my dad wouldn't have been like, well, I'm gonna get Mm. the boss. Like, my dad would have kidnapped that fucker and brought him back. (laughs) Yes! We have a tradition that almost feels like it's starting to be a cliche of of identifying the primary woman in in the movie as being the dad. But I really do think in this movie, Beverly D'Angelo is the daddy, largely because one of the earliest frameworks of realizing Clark's not actually the hero in this movie is when 
she says, have you plugged the lights in? And he says to her, do you really think I would have gone through all this work and not plugged the lights in? And you see the look on her face be like, we've been married for 17 years. I know you. And then she has the realization. She turns the lights on. He uh-huh. believes that he turned the lights on. And there's nothing, there's no clearer illustration that I can imagine of a dad thinking he pulled off a coup when actually his wife did all the actual groundwork for it. I mean, I think that's very much just a metaphor for a lot of relationships. And especially it goes back to that whole thing of the dad was always a bumbling idiot. The real brawn and the real structure, the bones of the of the family unit were the smart mother and like the wonderkund child. Yeah. yeah, like a genius in every household. And then adult men won't have to have emotional intelligence. It's fine. <laughs> And also that, like, Beverly D'Angelo is able to do the thing, which I recognize from, like, yeah, growing up with people who can't confront an emotion frontally, is that, like, she can't be like, I think you didn't plug them in, because then he will lose his mind. She has to trick him, and she has to let him think that he figured it out himself. And that's literally, like, your dad pushing you on behind you on your bike, and letting you think that you're just really strong all of a sudden. If you just had to describe what this movie is or is about to somebody, how would you describe it? I would describe it as a, it's a time capsule of the anxieties that would plague us through the 90s and the 2000s as we dealt with a shift in a technology and corporate structure. Yeah, I love that. This was also the time of the moral majority and things like that, right? Like there was a lot of anxiety around family values. The late 80s and early 90s was the pinnacle of family values. We have to get back to family. So I think it really kind of is a capsule of that, what we thought a family was and what it should look like. And this movie hates childless people. Yes, it's aesthetically extraordinarily conservative as the movie goes. Yeah. So I love that description and my own alternate description is that it's a movie about a man being destroyed by Christmas. (laughs) It's falling down, but about Christmas. (laughs) All right, everybody, that is it for this episode of Why Our Dads. I want to thank Sovereign Sire for being on the show. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, our wonderful producer our wonderful songstress our wonderful uh, uh person who makes this show sound so good carolyn sang christmas vacation in this episode which was originally written by cynthia wheel and barry mann and performed again as i said at the top of the show mavis staples find us online find us on twitter find us on instagram find us on patreon if you're interested in supporting that way and join us next week where we will talk a christmas story and i promise so so many other things (laughs) with the wonderful mara wilson thank you all so much for uh for being with us we really appreciate it